What a privilege to be with you, and Marshall, I love you. I thank you for the, for the uh, generous introduction. It's an honor to be with you, and we're going to look at this passage today. It's one of my favorite passages. Um, by the way, for those of you in the midst of raising children, it's a delightful and wonderful time. I really mean it, but there is one day, it's a glorious day when they all pay for themselves, and I, I have no words for how good a day. That is. We spent about 23 years of our lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, Marissa and I and our children, and that's where we raised our children. And I had a regular golf group on Fridays. We were what you might call dew sweepers. We played at 6.45 or 7 in the morning. It was me and about seven other guys. Those seven other guys happened to be all ex-Air Force folks. Uh, For various reasons, all of them had... um, Joined the Air Force right out of high school, some joyously, some with no other options, and had worked their way. They'd all uh, done 25 years in the service and it had really benefited them. And so they would often tell stories about being in the Air Force. But they all remember vividly the first day they were in the Air Force. They all arrived at the same place where they would do basic training and the same thing happened to all of them. They pulled up in a bus, and some mean men got on the bus. And the basic message that they were given on that bus was this. You're going to stand up. You're going to exit this bus one by one. You're going to leave your clothes for me to burn as you step off of the bus. You're going to step across the sidewalk in your underwear, and you're going to go in, and you're going to give me all of your hair You're going to come back out here. You're going to give me 25 push-ups. You're going to get up. You're going to go over there. You're going to talk to your mother. You're going to cry. Then you're going to give me your soul. So my my one friend, literally, my one friend, Fran Leonardo, has cried two times in his life. And he said the whole time he's on the bus, he's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, y'all are tough. And he said he picked up the phone. He heard his mother's voice, he could not get control of himself, and he gave the Air Force his soul. The second time he cried, honestly, twice, just was when he had a very unhealthy baby who ultimately survived, but in a situation where he was in the hospital. And what the Air Force was doing was trying to make everybody the same on that day. They came from various backgrounds, they had different families, they had different ethnicities, But on that day, they needed to be the same. They all needed to stand in their underwear with no hair, see, no identity, no clothes, knowing that they had someone whom they owed a debt, and that was the Air Force. This particular passage is Jesus saying to the disciples and to the Jewish nation and to us, you're mine. You owe me your soul. You owe me everything. And they're shocked because they thought that he came to sort of straighten their life out, to straighten their politics out, to sort of rearrange the world. And he came to make them and you and I his. And he does it in this parable. So the three things I want us to see this morning is 
what we understand from this passage, how we stop because of this passage, and then what we need to receive in this passage. So three things, understanding, stopping, and receiving. It's a very simple passage. You probably don't even need me to sort of reveal it to you. You don't need to know the Greek or go to seminary. The story is simple. There were two men who owed a debt. One owed a gigantic debt, right, to the king, and the other just owed a small debt to the man who owed a huge debt to the king. They both had a debt. And for our purposes, just to be clear in the preaching of God's word, it's important that you locate yourself, every one of you, as the one who owed the big debt to the king. When we read these stories, it's easy to sort of think, oh, I know what that's like from that perspective. The perspective that we need to own this morning is those who are looking at God's word and listening to Jesus is, we're the one who owed the debt to the king. And if that is true, if we all as individual people owe that debt to the king, that means we're all the same, doesn't it? So we spend our whole lives, we choose kindergartens now. Heck, we choose pre-kindergartens. We choose kindergartens. We choose grade schools. We, you know, college, graduate school, so that we can be differentiated from others, so that we know who we are, so that we have an identity, so we can put degrees on our wall, so we can achieve things. And I'm not mocking that at all. But when we come to the gospel, we find ourselves all the same. Those things go away. We're simply folks who have a debt that we cannot pay. We are debtors. And we owe a debt, and unless we embrace that, we'll be confused about the gospel. Jesus didn't simply come to sort of rearrange my life. As we come to know Christ, he might actually help us walk out of addiction. As we come to know Christ, he might help us be restored to other people. As we come to Christ, there's all sorts of things that loving him and being loved by him will change. But fundamentally, it begins with this. I am a debtor to him. That's what was so confusing to the original listeners of this passage. They thought a king was coming to restore Israel to its rightful place of glory, to rule over the nations where they could look down their noses at all the other countries and they could be the glory of God. And he came to say, you have a debt. You are a debtor. Years ago, I took a golf trip. Golf becomes a pretty important part of my life, um, with a bunch of guys from Myrtle Beach. And there was a guy named David Brandes. David Brandes is a great guy. I still know him. He's my age, had a bunch of kids, been an engineer, had a wonderful life. But David was a terrible golfer. Yeah, I mean, just no, there's no way around the horrific golfer he was. And the best thing about David being a bad golfer is he knew he was a bad golfer and he enjoyed it anyway. And that's the best kind of golfer. Like, don't take yourself seriously. And we're on this golf trip and consistently on this golf trip, there are 12 of us. I think the best score going into the last day of the golf trip is somebody had shot, had shot a 75, and that was extraordinary. So that was kind of the standard 75, and we all knew that. But what we didn't realize is we were going to play, play the easiest course in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And David was in the last group, and as he began to play, 
uh, only golfers really get this, like, it all came together. I mean, for instance, he hit a golf ball off of a tee box that went out of bounds and hit a house, and it came back in bounds, and it rolled towards the bunker. It banked, I saw this, it banked off of the rake for the bunker and went on the green. It should have gone in the hole for a one, but he tapped in for two. His whole, his whole round had this characteristic, right, of off the pine tree there for par, you know. He chipped in twice. It was just, and he's having the time of his life, and he should have. His best score before this afternoon, this particular afternoon, was 88. He's going to go on to shoot a 74. That's, guys, that's on you. No one improves that much in one round ever. And he was so, he should have been proud. He should have been happy. He should have enjoyed it. Here's what he didn't know. In the first group, there was going to be a 67, two 69s, and a 70. Now, those were all their personal best, easiest golf course we've ever played. But when he came into the clubhouse, he's ready to, like, win the trophy. Like, he's won that day. And they knew it, and so they wanted to honor him, so they weren't going to talk about what they shot. And he's like, I did this and off the roof. But he can tell suddenly that they're not talking about what they did. And finally he goes, hey, well, hey, what did, what did y'all shoot? Oh, no, it, man, it doesn't matter what we shot. Enjoy this. <laughs> no, no, no. What did y'all shoot? He visibly deflated. Well, I shot a, not me, but I shot a 70. I, a 68. A 68, a 67. And it shouldn't have discouraged him that much, but what he was reminded of in a very powerful way is there's a standard and he could not meet it. And in that moment, his score was sort of put in perspective. If I'm you, or if I'm me, we live in very similar neighborhoods, believe it or not. I can look around at the world and look around at people around the world and think, hey, God's blessed me. I'm doing pretty well. Look what I've achieved. And that's an absolute moment when we forget the standard for us. You look like you have it together. You live in a snow globe. You know that, right? You, like when I ride around these neighborhoods, I'm like, can we just shake it and the snow fall perfectly? Now, I know for y'all, snow is like this painful four-season event, but I'm just saying, you live in a snow globe. You, it looks like you have it together. Don't forget the standard. You will never understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. You'll never understand the gospel until you know that you are a debtor to him. You may not be a debtor to your neighbor. You may not be a debtor to your boss. In fact, he may be terrible. Or she may be terrible. But to the living God, you owe a debt. And you should not let your life or your circumstances deceive you about this. Your issue is not that your life is out of control, that you're sad, that you're angry, that you're lonely, that you're not what you were supposed to be according to your mama. Your, your, your difficulty today is the debt you have before God. Point two. You have to stop trying to pay the debt because you cannot pay the debt. So in this story, and this is a very difficult story for anyone who lives in the United States of America, we're told, and, he read, and Marshall read a slightly different version, which is fine. Pardon me, which is fine. We're told that he owed, how, did, how does the, yeah, but it was 10,000 10, something. 
Um, that measurement on the year Jesus was born, when they took up taxes in Jerusalem, they took up three of those. This debt is so large that the listeners in the original text could not comprehend how you could get that big a debt. That means it was a generational debt, not just from dad to son, but great-grandfather, great-grandfather, great-passed down, so that the debt was unpayable. Now, here's why that's hard for us. According to the news, all government officials of all stripes and the local government, there's no unpayable debt. I'm, I'm not like... We're just going to pile up the debt. We're going to use like we're going to use words like trillion, which are incomprehensible even to mathematicians. We're going to listen to them on the news or TikTok or Facebook, and we're just used to these giant numbers. And somewhere we'll deal with them. But the people listening in this text realize you can't deal with this. It's unfixable. It's an unpayable debt. This is crucial to understand it. This debt cannot be paid, and it's owed to the king. It's not just that we're a debtor. It's that we have an unpayable debt. So when this man in this story, and it's beautiful, falls on his knees, and we're told, begs for mercy. At this the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. That's a lie. No human in that day and age looking at that debt could ever pay it back. There was no lotto. There was no, you know, Wall Street moment. It's a foolish, it's a foolish thing to say. The service master took pity on him, probably translated better, had mercy on him and forgave that debt. This parable is designed to get you to stop trying to pay the debt back. A lot of people, when they begin to wake up to Christ, even as they've walked with Christ, have in the back of their heads, I want to pay him back. I want to make sure Jesus thought it was worth it when he saved me. And the message of this parable, which is the fundamental message of the Bible, is you can't pay the debt that you owed. You simply cannot pay it. And you have to stop trying to pay it. I don't know how old I was, but I was watching a Philadelphia uh, Eagles football game. And the old punt, pass, and kick. So when I was a child, which is way too long ago, used to do this thing called punt, pass, and kick. I don't know if it's still around, but you took your children out, boys and girls, and they punted the ball, they kicked the ball, and they passed the ball, and it was a contest. And it sort of towards the end of the fall, after you'd done this, they went to a National Football League game and they had the championships of the punt, pass, and kick contest. And they did it at this Philadelphia Eagles game. And I remember in the old stadium. So they, and it was a better thing to do at halftime than what they do now where the people just talk to you about what you've just watched. I don't need you to tell me what I've just watched. Um, so the kids are out there and they, you know, they punted it, passed it, kicked it, and we're, and we're, we're, you know, we're celebrating them, we're telling them about where they're from and where they go to school, and the kids did a good job, but I do remember this vividly. Whatever the oldest age group was, he threw it 41 yards, the kid. Spectacular. And he won the punt, pass, and kick contest, and we celebrated, it's a big, you know, big award, parents can be proud. He never played football again, but hey, he won the punt, pass, and kick contest. <laughs> Then whoever it was, either NBC, CBS, or ABC, made the mistake of a lifetime. 
by insulting those children by doing this. They showed Randall Cunningham, the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles at that press of time, warming up before the game. And he would throw it 20 yards, then 30 yards, then 40 yards. And he ended his warm-up by throwing it 120 yards. So he stood on the back goal line, the back of the you know, field, and threw it the entire field. <laughs> and what they didn't realize, and I appreciate my dad so much, he's like, well, that made the kids look stupid, didn't it? <laughs> right? <laughs> You've just celebrated these kids. The best was 41 yards. Randall can do that, like, sideways. Jesus Christ will mean nothing to you until you know you can't pay the debt that you owe. Nothing. If you're trying to use Jesus to straighten your life, to fix your life, to change your kid, or any of those things, a lot of good stuff there, you're not hearing what he's telling you. This debt that you incurred as a sinner is a debt that you cannot pay And the only appropriate thing to do is to stop trying to pay it. Psalmist says it this way, be be still, which means stop, and know that I am God. One of the things we like to say in our church is we want to rest, remind, and reflect. We stole that from Sean Slate. But for us, rest means you stop and admit that all that you need and your relationship with the Heavenly Father is you need to stop and say, Jesus did it all. We sing that sometimes, don't we? He did it all. But for us, who live the way we've lived, who've attended the schools we've attended, who've achieved the things we've attended, it's hard for us to say, he did it all. We had a debt that we cannot pay. And the proper thing is to stop trying to pay it. There's no classroom that will teach you this. There's no graduate school that will teach you this. I promise you if you send your kids to sixth grade and say, hey, in math class, just don't do anything. They won't get an A. You'll have to do like 30 visits to the school and be shamed as a parent because your child has stopped. It's counterintuitive to every single thing you're taught. Your boss really doesn't like this. I just came in today to receive grace. I'll be over here on the computer doing what I want to. That's called a pink slip. This isn't like anything else. He had a debt that he cannot pay. And I, I just would like, this is not a whole point for the sermon. I think what is obviously fascinating about this passage is when the king forgave the one, the unpayable debt, he went out and found the guy with the small debt. And what an amazing image. It's where our culture lives today. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him to be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused instead and went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. It says at one point that he was choking him. He grabbed him and began to choke him, pay back what you owe me. The giant debt finds a small debt and chokes him and says, do what I say. That is where our culture lives right now. The anger and the frustration of I'm superior to you, therefore I can choke you and yell at you, is everywhere, it's in your heart, it's especially in my heart, it's everywhere, and it's because we think we can pay the debt back. 
You can't pay the debt back. Let me one more time at this, then I'll quit. Not the whole sermon at this point. I want you to imagine to take all of you to Los Angeles, and we stand on the beach. And I say, hey, you've got to swim to Japan. Take off. You and your children. And all of us, you're not allowed, once you get in the water, you're not allowed to come back, so we take off. Uh, I think I, I figured this out. I think I got six and a half miles in me before I drowned. I think your children got about 100 yards before they drowned. And some of you are like expert swimmers. You do that amazing thing, get up and go swimming every morning for your exercise. I think you're going to make it 50 to 60 miles. The longest any human can make it or has made it so far, maybe a challenge to some of you, is 155 miles. It's 5,500 miles to Japan. The longest anybody has ever gone is 0.02%. 0.02. You can't pay the debt back to Jesus you owe. Which is why when you come to this table, what you're saying is this week, even if it was the best week of your life, someone had to die for you. Celebrate the joy that someone else paid your debt because finally, the only thing you can do to deal with this debt is to receive the free forgiveness paid by the king. What do you do with this debt? What do you do when you recognize it? You ask the king to pay it. The debt must be paid. The debtor must be paid off. And the king is willing to pay your debt. He's not going to teach you how to pay the debt. He's not going to put you in a program. He's simply going to pay that debt. I mean, it's interesting how quickly he did it for the first guy. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. And the servant's master took mercy on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And that feels like the modern credit card cancellation moment when you accidentally got too much credit in debt, but the credit card company is making $7 billion a year, so they write it off. No, this is a real loss. This is an incomprehensible debt. This is a debt no country could have had, but there was a king who could pay for the debt, and he paid the debt. There is someone who can pay off the debt. He is your king, and he will do it by mercy. He pays it off when we simply ask him to pay it off. Will you ask the king to pay your debt? Now, I just want to say this carefully because so many of you are Christians. It's, always, it's actually nice to preach to people you don't know because you don't know. So you can't offend anybody. So some of you are not Christians and you're investigating and some of you are Christians. And the Christians could easily go, this is a great sermon for non-Christians. Fair enough, but this is for you. The Christian who sort of drifts into I'll help Jesus with my debt begins to destroy them and their children. You really destroy your children with this. Because only the king can pay the debt. And the king is willing to pay the debt. He's willing to write it off. Someone else must pay your debt, and you must stop stop trying to pay it off. 
Years ago, uh, when we lived in Knoxville, this is a long time ago, we lived in a house. Uh, and we all have this house. I hope you're in it now. And I hope you don't have to move out of it. I decided to move to Tucson and lost this house. Uh, it was my wife's favorite house of all times. It was my hated house of all time. It was the greatest house ever. The girls were raised in the basement. We painted it pink. We had 43 Barbies. Um, we had all the little doll houses. It was perfect. It could be messy. We had a main floor we could keep clean, and we all slept upstairs. Now, the reason I hated the house is it was old, and it was rotting, and I could feel the money. I could just hear the money going into the house. And the reason my wife loved it was every memory was there, and, you know, this is we measured the kids, and the Christmas tree went there, and I'm with her. But every time we did that, I was like, yeah, but it's still $80,000 away from what we need. And so God delivered us to Tucson. To a really wonderful dwelling. But on the most amazing night in that house, we were sitting, I was sitting on the couch on a Friday evening. My oldest daughter, she's now 27 and married. Man, can my son-in-law cook. Amen. And um, she was at a high school event. I don't know if she was a junior or senior, but she could drive. And one daughter, the, the, middle, the middle daughter was downstairs in her bedroom, and the, our youngest daughter was spending the night out with a good friend that we knew. And I'm on the couch watching ESPN, I'll never forget this, and Marissa's at the kitchen sink just washing the last three things to put in the dishwasher, which is, makes her and I different. If I'm putting in the dishwasher, I don't wash it before, but that's another discussion. <laughs> and for many of you, that's a source of counseling. But uh, no, you know. We need help on the dishwasher, and that's just true, because there's a cup goes like this and not like that, and we're getting divorced if you don't have it. I get that. Okay, sure. We've paid a lot of money about the dishwasher with you, and I'm just about asleep. I bet it's, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 or something, and we hear an explosion, and we know instantly it's a terrible car accident, but the sound makes no sense. So... Our home is facing Cheshire, and another road, Delburn, comes down and tees into Cheshire. And you have to go right or left because my driveway is basically the other side of Delburn, and you exit, our, you exit right or left to get out of our neighborhood. Our Cheshire was a cut-through road. And, and Marissa screamed. I think she actually screamed, oh, my God. And she goes, I think there's been a wreck in our backyard. That's actually not possible. So our backyard is about because I have a golf thing about 60 yards from the front of our yard. And again, no one would be driving down through here. So we run out, and we have this giant tree. You can actually still see this on Google Earth if you look. And there is a car that is smashed about seven feet up this tree, and the tree is all the way in past the window. So what happened that evening was a young woman, about 20 years of age, went to Twisted Sisters Bar and was overserved significantly. She got in her car, a Saturn SUV, and went to drive home and was so drunk she got disoriented. She should have gone right. She comes to the, to the red light where there's the Hardys, and Delburn is right actually in front of her. Instead of going right left, she just drove on Delburn, and there's actually some video of her swerving. And as she's coming towards, and actually Delburn empties right into the bedroom of my neighbor's house. She's going 72 miles an hour. She's passed out, her hands are off the steering wheel, and she's slumped down, pressing the gas, accelerating. 
Thankfully, when she hits the curve that moves the water, it moves her right so that she doesn't plow into his window. He has a two-story uh, house, but the, the, lower, the lower level's a little sunk, and she would have gone through his window killing them. Instead, she bumps to the right and runs over my roses. I'm still a little bitter about that, by the way. I've been working on those roses for years. And the, our driveway was raised up. When you hit the end of our driveway, we had one of those bu- little bumps, and it stuck. And she did a Dukes of Hazard. I hope that means something to some of you. She just launched, and she hit the tree, and God intervened on her behalf. When it pushed the engine into the car, it pushed it into the passenger side and sat it on the seat, and she slumped over. And there was a debris field about 30 yards, a perfect V. Both of her front lights were about 24 yards forward and all of the car. And the car was much. And my wife ran over there. Um, thank, thank you for wife being available. I had on no shoes. I was panicked. And when she pulled open the door, the woman slumped out unconscious, bleeding on her. Paramedics showed up. Police showed up. Firemen showed up. They took some of her blood. They arrested her. And this is the kind of story you're so thankful doesn't involve anyone else. They take her to the hospital. All she had was a broken wrist and a cut. Because what happened that night, and I mean this very seriously, is NASCAR won. So most of the early research about how to crash a car was in NASCAR. If you don't know what NASCAR is, that just makes you a non-Southern, non-redneck. Congratulations. (laughs) In the South, we like to race things, and we call it NASCAR. And we just go in circles, and they drink a lot of beer they shouldn't drink, and there's a party on the infield, and it's pretty boring, honestly. But they learned to crash cars. They, they needed people to live through 180-mile accidents. And when her car hit, all of, the, all of the engineering that the smart people did about NASCAR, her car crumpled, it pushed the engine away from the driver, the airbags went off, and it sat her at 72 miles an hour, seven feet in the air, hitting a tree she didn't move. It enveloped her and handed her to the paramedics safely. Unconscious. Now, we had to go testify. She two and a half times the legal level. Poor twisted sisters got shut down as it should have. All those appropriate things happened. She served some time actually in prison. So there's second DUI. But I just would like you today, I'd like you to go to your lunch or to your children's event or to your nap with this picture of you, drunk, passed out, accelerating to your death with no hope and no consciousness. And Jesus came apart for you. What happened at the cross was everything that you deserved was put on him and he was splatted to pieces. He was pulled apart. He was destroyed. He was beaten. All the blood went out of him. And even more vividly than that car destroyed in my backyard, he was destroyed for you to pay that debt. This table is Jesus' destruction on your behalf. And it is the most joyous thing anyone could ever meet or know. The good news today is that you are not good enough. The good news today is you can't pay the... That is the best news ever. That this man at this table was destroyed and the king paid our debt. And, the, and we can just say, thank you. And we can eat it and drink it without having to prove we deserve it. Because I'll tell you this about me, because I don't deserve it. 
and you don't deserve it, but it is the sweetest thing ever. That this king, who we owe an unpayable debt to, paid our debt with his son Jesus, who was blown up for us. Let me pray for us. Father, for this glorious story of the two debtors, we pray that you would teach us that we're the bigger debtor. That we would really stop trying to pay it ourselves, that we would receive the grace and mercy of the destroyed Savior, blown up for us, who delivered us safely from our unconscious drunkenness into life and grace and peace. May we drink and eat deeply of your grace as we see it in Jesus, we pray. Amen.